All right. We have Glenn Poulos in the virtual studio today, author of Never Sit in the Lobby. Glenn, how's it going, brother? Excellent. Thank you for having me, guys. Absolutely. I am super stoked for this one. This one's been on the calendar for quite some time. And I had just reread all the stuff that Todd Armstrong had sent us, who's our mutual connection. And he was talking about some of the, the businesses that you bought and sold. You know, I, He sent me over a PDF of all the stuff that you got going on, the book. We got a lot of sales conversation happening. So a lot of our audience is based around entrepreneurship and sales. So I think this is going to be a great one. Well, thanks, Antonio. I'm looking forward to talking about it with you guys. So Awesome. And I want to make sure that we're getting, we're diving deep into tactics and strategy and all that stuff. But why don't we start with a little bit more about your background and where you're from, your beginnings and how you started in entrepreneurship and sales. Sure. No problem. And I'll try to give it the Cook's Tour, the brief one, or as I call it in the the book, the mini tour. And, uh, you know, just for the sake of time. But I started as a, believe it or not, as a civil servant working for the federal government. I'm in Toronto, Canada. So in Canada, we call it the Environment Canada. In the States, call it probably the National Weather Service. And I worked fixing electronics and I actually worked in the Arctic for a year on a weather station. And I really didn't like the job, but I went to school for tech and they offered me a job and it was good money and I took it. But my boss, when I came back to Toronto from the Arctic said, you're in the wrong business. You need to get a job in sales. And being the young, impressionable 20 something I was, I didn't really question him on it. I'm like, oh, okay, fine. <laughs> I just flipped open the newspaper and started looking for jobs. And I focused on technical selling because I was an electronic technician. And so as the story goes, and I do relay in the book a little bit, you know, I, I applied for a job and I got an interview and uh, with a company that sells electronic measuring instruments, so high-tech measuring equipment and state-of-the-art stuff. And I went for the interview. And then the next day I called the guy and said, Hey, did I get the job? Right. He's like, well, I'm still doing interviews. I'm like, okay. So I called him that afternoon and I said, do I have it yet? Like, what about now? Right. And he's like, no. And I'm like, okay. So then, then he started letting the secretary take my calls. Right. So the next day I called in the morning and the afternoon, and this was nothing malicious on my part. I was just behaving in my normal manner. Right. And, you know, like a week later, after calling the guy like 10 times, he says, you know what, we're sending you to go back to visit our to Montreal, right to visit my other partners there. And so I flew to Montreal. Another funny part of the story is when I worked for the government, we had these cars we used. they were like Chevy Chevettes, they were these tiny little cars, Canada government green, no radio, no power windows, no air, crappiest car you could ever imagine. And I used to drive all over parts of Canada fixing things. And when I got picked up at the airport in Montreal, the guy was driving a BMW 750. And my first thing is like, wow, I definitely need to get a job in sales. And uh, when he pulled into the office in Montreal, there were three partners there. They had matching BMW 750s. And the license plates were like one digit apart. And for me, I was 24 or something at the time. I was just blown away. And so to make a long story short, they hired me. And when I went back, the the guy in Toronto says, you you weren't even on our list of people to hire. And I'm like, well, why'd you hire me then? Because I'm working here. And he's like, because you're the only guy that followed up 10 times for the job. And we assume that if you can follow up 10 times to get the job, you'll follow up 10 times to keep the job. And I'm like, yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. So anyways, I'll just take a breath, see if you have any questions, but that, that's how I got into sales. And I worked for those guys for like five years. So. Wow. That's a, that's an amazing story. And I have to imagine the, the professional persistence that you displayed is like a core value that they were looking for. And so while at the time there might've been more qualified people from an outside perspective, your ability to just continue to pursue the job 
even though they might have found it initially like disrupting and annoying, they realize, okay, th- this is probably the guy that we need right here. And that's, yeah. that's awesome, man. So, so tell us a little yeah. bit about now the transition from getting to the job to perfecting your craft and increasing your sales and eventually starting your own companies. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So I was lucky enough to work with one of the guys, one of the owners, there were four owners and one of the guys who I, I, I quote him several times in the book and in the book, I changed a lot of the names because to try to protect the guilty, some of the stories people maybe don't want to hear about themselves and some of them they do. Right. But nonetheless, one of the guys was this master consummate salesman and he, you know, he would just, take me around and show me the ropes and how he was doing things and what have you. And I just started picking up things uh, along the way. And he wasn't like saying, Oh, do this, do that, do this, do that. But I started taking notes on what I noticed he was doing and how it was helping us to get in the door and what have you. And, and that's where I developed like some of the rules that I apply and that I talk about in the beginning of the book. And one thing about the book that I always like is some people are like, oh, I didn't finish the book. And I'm like, that doesn't matter. Like you can pick up the book at any point and flip to any page and you'll just be in one of the 57 little tips and techniques. And the ones that come before it and come after it, they kind of flow together, but they all stand alone. And one of the first things I learned from him was, believe it or not, never sit in the lobby. And funny, I think there's a book after that rule, right? He, he taught me that. Never sit in the lobby. And people are like, well, what, should I sit in my car? And I'm like, no, you shouldn't be sitting at all. You should actually be standing in the lobby waiting for your customer, right? And they're like, why? Like, why can't, you know? And I'm like, well, because if you're sitting down and some six foot four guy comes out, he's going to be towering over you while you're sitting down playing with your phone. It's just not a good look, right? You want to be standing, waiting and alert, not distracted. Don't be making phone calls. Don't show up too early. So you're there at the appropriate time, right? And of course, that was the one rule that I, I used to, for the title of the book, right? But uh, some of the other things that I learned from him, one of the ones I love, the story I love is the call book factor. And of course, uh, I tell the story in the book as it occurred in the 80s, right? But where we use these call books. But nowadays, it's your phone, right? We all have our phones connected to us in sales. And we're one click away from LinkedIn and the CRM and all that, right? But when I would get to the customers a few minutes early and before I would stand in the lobby, I would go to that customer account. In the 80s, it was a little a multi-ring binder that had the company names in them and all the people that I knew. And nowadays, it's just LinkedIn or whatever or, or the CRM. But I would look at that account that I was visiting and I would go through every name, Bob, Jack, Sally, George, and I would re-remember their face again. And that's another rule in the, uh, that, that flows from the book called Never Forget a Face, right? And so I would familiarize myself with all of the names and then all of the faces, and I would bring them from the back of my memory to the front of my memory. And then I would show in the lobby, stand up, wait for the guy. And if I wasn't super familiar with what he was doing, one of the other rules, I would always ask them for a mini tour. And the difference between a mini tour and a tour is that a tour is is annoying when you ask for one of those because it's like that's going to take three hours and you know it's going to require a tour guide. A mini tour is hey, just show me your new production line, just show me your new warehouse, just sh- show me your new lab, whatever, something like that, right? And if they would balk or whatever, I'd say, look, I promise I won't sell any encyclopedias or vacuums while we're in the building. And and they're like, okay, fine, I'll give you a quick mini tour of my lab. And so as we're walking through the hall all these people that I knew would walk by and I'd say, Hey, Bob, Jack, Sally, George. 
And this guy's like looking at me like, holy shit, like, you know, everybody. And, and the people that are walking by are going like, who is that guy? You could even see it in their face. Right. And they were having the exact reaction that I was trying to avoid, which was, I didn't want to not remember who they were as they were saying, hi, Glenn in the hall. Right. And, you know, it's happened to you probably many times at your kid's soccer game or whatever. And the couple comes up and says, oh, hey, David and Sally or whatever. And you don't remember their name at all. And so that was one of the most powerful lessons I learned was to in establishing rapport was to never forget a face, never forget a name. Right. And, uh, and all those people would end up just by, just by some sort of natural process, by me always remembering their names, they would just have an affinity for me. When they would see me again, the, they would have my name sort of burned into their memory because, because I, because I remembered their name. And they would often reflect on, oh, it's always so nice to see you. And it's so great when you come by and whatever, even though I'm not even barely interacting with them. But all that sort of bundles together to create rapport, which I find is one of the biggest part about moving customer along the sales cycle. So those are some of the things I, I learned early on before I quit that job and started my own company. So maybe I'll take a break for a second. And, uh, and yeah, there's a, there's a, yeah, I mean, I, I wrote down four topics. One of them was... I wanted to ask you a question about business in the 80s. I wanted to ask you about some tips yeah. on how to remember names. And then you mentioned rapport and, and starting your own company. So we could go yeah. in, a, in a couple of directions. Yeah, sure. How have you seen the like, – go ahead. Did you want to dive, dive Well, I was just going to say the, remember, the, yeah, the remembering of the name one. I'll tell you that one quickly in the beginning because that one's it's pretty easy. And I learned it from my mother. And basically the way I do it, is when I'm introduced to some, you know, let's say the person's name is Jack, right? And mm -hmm. the guy beside me says, hey, Glenn, I want to introduce you to Jack. And you have to look right at the guy. You got to sort of like be memorizing his face, right? And so and say, hey, Jack, it's great to meet you. And then immediately in your brain, you have to say Jack, 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 right? You have to like repeat the name and just burn an image of his face and his team together at the same mm -hmm. time. And then try to use his name once or twice without sounding annoying during the conversation if he's still there and then mm -hmm. at the end re repeat his name oh it's great to meet you jack hope to see you again on my next visit and then i would probably also say oh by the way you know if i think he's a target or something i'd say you know what i'm actually back here next thursday could i get five minutes of your time right because a lot of time i was visiting mm -hmm. different labs different departments and they would often be amenable at that point and say, sure. Now, all of a sudden, I knew what next Thursday that I would be in their building visiting Jack as a bare minimum. And then everyone else I would meet, I would be saying, oh, you know what? I'm in the building visiting Jack. Could I get some time with you when I'm finished? Yeah. And then I would get the people once I got in the building just to move me around. Take me, Jack, take me to see Bob. Bob takes me to see George. And then that's how I fill out my day a week from now and two weeks from now, right? So I didn't have to dial for dollars back at the office. Oh, can I come see you? The biggest thing about rapport building is one, don't be annoying. And for me, like a lot of people call it a BS meter and things like that when people are BSing you or whatever, like, but I kind of have a, like an annoying meter, right? It's, it's set to a very <laughs> low level, right? Like if someone's being like overly fake, nice, it's like, yeah, cross the boundary yeah. of like, all right, you're just giving me a bunch of fake confusion at this point. You don't even yeah, exactly, that exactly. Much, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right, like right. One of the, one of the rules of the book is implied familiarity also breeds contempt. And the story is mm. that uh, like familiarity breeds contempt. Like if you go away, your best friend, you go away for the, with the guy for two weeks, staying in a cabin or whatever, you might hate the guy when the two weeks is up because familiarity breeds contempt because the, 
weird, strange things you learn about people and what have you. But I learned also a funny thing about customers is that when you imply that you're familiar with them, they get immediately contemptuous. And the story mm-hmm. I tell is where you go in the guy's office and you see him there and he's holding a fish and he's with another guy, you know, the, the standard weighing the fish pose. And you're sort of like, oh, yeah, I see you've got a bass there. That's awesome. I love bass fishing. You know, maybe we should go out sometime. And then the guy says, you know what? Like, I freaking hate fishing. That's my <laughs> father-in-law. That's actually my ex-father-in-law. We're divorced. And you know what? I forgot to take that photo down. He grabs the photo and chucks it in the garbage, right? And and now he, you've brought up a horrible memory for him. A divorce, right. a father-in-law you didn't like, a bunch of things, right? And because you just implied that you knew what was going on, right? You should have started right. off with, with more rapport-building questions like, what do you do on the weekends and uh, when you're not at work, right? So that's a little bit on the rapport-building. The thing about starting my own business, I started with them in like 85, And in 91, I was on the cusp of turning 30 and I was going to be 30 in May of 1992. So in October of 1991, I approached them and I said, Hey, you know, you guys have a great business selling technology, but you know, I see a part of your technology that I could actually spin off and create a second company just focused on that piece, get some other brands from around the world and build a second company, you guys could retain some ownership. I would retain some ownership of the new company. And I could start my own company, which is what I wanted to do. And they basically said, you know what, Glenn, it sounds great, but you know, show us your plan. And we're going to show you how it's probably not going to be able to work. And so I literally came back the next day, and I submitted my resignation. And and I just quit on the spot, because I knew they were never going to be, they were never going to support me, they didn't want me or see me as a partner. And I needed to do it by myself, right? Do it on my own. And so, yeah, so I signed off and and filled out and submitted my resignation. But the funny part of the story is that six days before that, I signed and filled out a marriage license because I had gotten married a week before. And I didn't even tell my wife I was going to quit. I was just so bound and determined that I knew it would work that I quit. And then I went home and said, oh, by the way, I quit. I'm starting my own business. And of course, after she fainted, I explained it to her. And as you all be able to relate. I picked the crappiest technology that wasn't going anywhere. It was based <laughs> yeah, on cell phones. Right, right. <laughs> and of course, that didn't go anywhere and became a complete failure. It, of course, exploded. And I ran two companies and sold them both for 15 years each. And the first one, which was not the one I'm as most proud of, but it was a very successful exit and everything, but it was a reverse takeover private public company type deal where they gave us a bunch of shares. And we got very little cash. And on paper, we looked like multimillionaires. But really, this company uh, behind the scenes was more of a take over these companies and then suck them dry for cash. And they ended up closing down our, our division. And we all ended up losing our what at the time was our jobs. And later, that company kind of tanked. And the share value went to went to virtually zero. And I was an insider with so many shares and a, a former owner. I wasn't able to sell my shares. And so one day I had $5 million of shares and the next minute I had no job and, and no money. And um, of course I was freaking out and uh, right. as anyone would losing 5 million bucks. And on Friday, I thought, I thought we were having some hard times on Monday. We were in receivership. It was that fast. I did not know, even though I was a major shareholder in the business and the C-level guys just kept it all hidden. And um the reality was I'd never really, uh, the government came and got me out of college 
you know, I, I really only applied for one job, which was the job where I harassed them for 10 days to get the job. And I never really applied for any other jobs in my life. And I thought, oh my God, I have to either apply for jobs or I could just have to start over and like start another company. And I thought, well, I'd rather start a new company. So that's right. where I took my initials GP and I decided to buy a vowel. And, and I started with the first one, A, and I went G-A-P, GAP. Okay, GAP's good. GAP wireless. Okay, good. And I, I used an online incorporation service. And in a few minutes, I was incorporated. And I ultimately ran that company. I had a partner in Montreal, but we ran the business for 15 years and we sold it to a U.S. private equity in February for a very, very healthy exit. And of course, this was all cash and, and they're a very, very reputable company. And uh, we're staying on for, for three years or so to help them with the business. But uh, our turnover is going to be probably $80 million this year. So we grew it from zero to 80 million in 15 years. And I sold out in February of this year. So I've just been an employee for a few months, right? So you've been, Congratulations. So you've been, you've been building this thing up. And what has it been like to, I want to get where you're at now and what that's like to build something and then kind of exit and step away slowly. But I also wanted to ask you about business in the 80s all the way up through today. What are some of the yeah. commonalities and common denominators with just human interactions and people that still exist today? And then what has changed? Obviously technology, but what are some things that, used to fly back then sales language wise that don't fly now or just certain customs that have evolved. I don't know if you care to touch on that. Yeah. So some of the, yeah, some of the customs that I don't really partake in too much anymore, some of the establishments we'd go to after work, uh, bars and things like that. Uh, a lot of the entertainment's maybe a little more tame these days than it used to be. But the one thing that's sort of changed, but not changed, like people are always arguing with me is that like, we still sell technology products and just so people can picture what they are like, if you look up at a cell phone tower, except for the radio that comes from the big guys like Ericsson and Samsung you know, and Nokia, we sell everything else on the tower. All that stuff, that's what we sell. And when you're in the stadium watching a football game or some kind of game and you've got five bars coverage on your phone and you're uploading and downloading pictures, that's because if you look up, there's a system and we probably sold it to that stadium or to that carrier to put in that stadium. And that's the kind of stuff that we sell, right? And we sell instruments that measure the quality of the network and stuff like that, right? So just to put a kind of a picture in people's minds, right? But, and we've been doing that kind of stuff for 30 years, right? And, and so what a lot of people think is that a lot of that has moved to LinkedIn and this, that, and the other, but a hundred percent of what we do is still done face-to-face -face with our customers. And the only part of it that's changed is maybe the method with which we contacted them either at the beginning or even in the middle, right? Like, you know, before we would pick up the phone or in the eighties, we would have to mail them a quote where I have a, I do have a rule though, never fax the fax and never ship the shit, right? Which came from the eighties, which was, if someone asked for a quote, drop it off, you know, and show up in their lobby, just show up in their lobby. And they say, well, why are you here? And I go, well, you asked for a quote and they go, well, you could have emailed it, faxed it or sent it over WhatsApp, you know, nowadays, right? But I'm like, well, you asked for a quote, I dropped it off. And hey, by the way, why don't you take a look and see what you think, right? And then they would say to me something like, oh, well, okay. it looks okay, but I need a few days. And you're like, and it's Monday and say, perfect. I'm here on Thursday visiting Jack. Can I drop by and get an update? And of course, and that's the way I always do it, right? And so for me, a lot of it, nothing has changed. It's always this first principles of, you know, if you're not really in front of the customer selling, then for the most part, for my guys, my sales guys, I'm pretty much saying you're not doing your job. 
And they're like, well, what about like, you know, lead generation and, you know, prospecting on LinkedIn and doing things like that. I'm like, that's actually, to me, that's all marketing. And your job as the salesman, because I mean, I'm talking to salespeople, not like marketing people or anything like that. The the face-to-face sales guys, your job is to be in front of the customer. Everything else is a distraction or an excuse. And I mean, and, you know, it depends on how you, how you say it. Right. But but sometimes it's hard to hear. Sometimes it's hard to say, but it's still the truth. That's the job as it is. Nowadays, you have all these tools where you can get a hold of your customer quicker and easier. And there are conveniences. You can you know, send them emails when it's appropriate, but you don't want to be relying on that, right? You don't want to get dust on you while you're sitting in your chair and not selling. And that, that's kind of one of my mantras, right? And I love that. Yeah. And so what's changed is the technology interface between the customer, but really in the world that we operate in, that's why I described the kind of equipment that we sell. We do it in front of the customer face-to-face. And there are some things, maybe software products and uh, software as a service and stuff like that, where maybe it is an online world, but that's not really the world I operate in. But most products that you touch and feel need to be, you know, need to be handled in, in, in the old school method, in my opinion. And the people that are getting you leads, generating things on LinkedIn, those are all your SDRs and your BDR type people. And that's their job. And they're learning the ropes so they can become an outside account manager and make the big bucks. And that guy's job or girl's job is to be in front of the customer selling face to face. And I think marketing is extremely important and good marketing is great for a company, but that does not replace good sales, right? Being great at sales ultimately having a higher conversion ratio is going to bring more profitability yeah. to the company right. without having to spend more money on marketing anyway. And yeah. fulfilling the product properly and having a great sales process and client experience ultimately lowers your cost of marketing because of the fact that you'll probably get more referral-based business over time. So, so yeah. I love the model that you've created there. Now, my question to you, as we have a couple more minutes, we want to be conscious of your time here, is as you're building an organization, I know you started on the sales side, but you as the head executive of a company at some point, how do you go about creating a management structure within the sales team to where you're finally letting go of that? So, yeah, I mean, of course, I contingent myself for 37 years that I always knew what I was doing and I was always doing it right. And But of course, each year you, you learn more and you look back on what you were doing and the mistakes you've made and definitely haven't had a flawless performance over the years. Obviously, I built a company, sold it to a poor partner who then went bankrupt and I lost all my money. But in the end, we ended up adopting what we call an operating system. And we picked one that's, that's in use by over 8,000 companies around the world. It's called EOS, the Entrepreneurial Operating System. I don't, I don't have any Gino affiliation Whitman. with them. Yeah, yeah, I, exactly. And I don't have any affiliation with them, but we use their system and we use it religiously for the last three years. That's where the and that's where the hugest gains have come from getting the right people in the right seats. In 2019, this is a crazy fact, but we were in four or five business areas. Many of them we shouldn't have been in. There's chapters in the book on don't make these mistakes, right? Uh, just because you're good at this doesn't mean you're good at that right? You know, it's like people like realtors or whatever, they're great at selling houses. And then all of a sudden, I'm going to be a mortgage broker too. On the side, they spend 3% of their time trying to build a mortgage broker agency and they wonder why it fails, right? And you got to pick your staff it accordingly, right? And if you're not a leader of a mortgage broker, you need to hire that guy. You need to partner with someone or whatever. And in 2019, we went from 80 people to 29 people to rectify that problem in one day, in one day. 
Wow. And our profitability jacked infinitely in 2020. Like I can't even measure it because we were, we, we had never lost money before, but in 2019, we were going to lose money and we did lose money. And, and we made, we turned it around so fast, even after the severance and all that stuff for all those people. And every one of those people got a job, were placed and landed on their feet, which is good. It wasn't all because of me or anything, but they all did. And, and our profitability just went through the roof and we grew exponentially from that point on, shedding all the unnecessary distractions and putting a proper leader in each box, the finance box, the uh, production box, the sales box, operations box, et cetera. And, and what we did was we basically cycled through all our people till we had the best person in every role. And that's how we did it. I'm not sure if it would repeat itself the same way if I had to do it again, but that's that's how we did it. And the structure of using something like an operating system like, like EOS, it allows you to default to a rule and a process where there otherwise isn't one and you're shooting from the hip. And now we notice, mm-hmm. now that we've been acquired and and we visit other companies and stuff, we can see the benefits that we've achieved from that because we can just default to standard op- to process and procedure, just like the army or whatever, right? And you know, when things happen, we can refer to this this kind of a process or that. If there's a conflict, we can have a CTA, a clear the air, and we use all of their processes, all of them, and and that's how we built the leadership team that we have now. And we, uh, oops, yeah, and we have so one more thing. No, no, we absorbed, yeah, we absorbed one other company this year, and we just. We just brought them into our, our EOS and we just, you know, put the right people in the right seats, some from their company, some from our company. No one left or anything, but we, we had to move the chairs around. And, uh, you know, as I like to say, we moved the deck chairs around, but fortunately it wasn't on the Titanic this time, right? And it's working out well. So yeah, that's how we did it. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. That is a beautiful testament and great story as to how an amazing system that takes the emotions out of it. Right, an army-like system that's ironclad and bulletproof there with the right people in the right seats thinking who, not how, so who can do this as opposed to how can I do this and yeah. delegating properly, that ultimately leads to a multi-eight-figure, potentially nine-figure exit like we're witnessing yeah. now. So that, that is amazing right. and appreciate you sharing that story. Man. Yeah. And then the one sort of little t- uh, tidbit I'll just share with the people that might be wondering about implementing it or whatever is my, my, I always like to tell people that when you're a leader and you're doing the proper job, you shouldn't have to do anything. Your job should be nothing, right? Because you should be just answering questions and solving problems for your staff that are leaders that are doing all the work, right? And and so if you can embrace it, your job can be awesome, right? Because a lot of the heavy lifting is being done by very capable people, professionals in their in all their chosen fields. And you just need to you just need to be there for them when they need a leadership decision. Should we invest hundred grand in new equipment? Should we hire this person, expand into that area? And you can provide your wisdom and stuff, but yeah, so it's really rewarding too as a as the ultimate leader to see that team flourish. And yeah, so very well said. So now, as we wrap up here, what is next for Glenn Poulos? I mean, you you have achieved a lot in the business world. I have to assume in February you earned your financial freedom tenfold there. Yeah. Um, you know what keeps you going, and what is it that you're looking to accomplish over the next twenty years? So I did do quite well in February and I don't, you know, I don't really like need to work, but a lot of times the way these deals work is you have to stay for three years, you know, have to prove that they didn't buy a lemon and, you know, (laughs) but uh, yeah, but so I did agree to the sort of three year sort of deal and, but I'm 60 now, so I'm not really, I wouldn't probably sign on again in three years. And what I'm hoping is that I can just, and I'm almost 
it's almost coming up on a year, right? So it's almost going to be only two years left. But, uh, you know, the one, you know, really like sort of bucket list thing that I'd love to do is maybe go on a little speaking tour for a little while and do some public speaking at other companies or other events and things like that. If it happened, it would be, it would be amazing. And I would love it. If it didn't happen, I'm, it's not like, you know, it would be a problem or whatever. I wouldn't need it as a job, but it would be a passion and something I would love to do for a few years. And, you know, and then as I like to say, then go off in the sunset, and play pickleball in Florida for the winter and up in Canada in the summer. Hey, let me know when you're down in Florida. I'll, I'll be there. We'll, we'll get some pickleball going. Awesome. Yeah, that's my I, I'm, I'm yeah. from Florida as well. So oh, yeah, nice. with that yeah, being right said, where, where can our audience buy the book? What can they expect from that book? And then where can they follow you? So if you go to my website, glennpoulos.com, G-L-E-N-N-P-O-U-L-O-S.com, all my socials can be linked there. There's a couple like little workbook things they can download and presentation guides and stuff. And you can link over to the book on, it's on, you know, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. It's all the places you can get it in US and Canada in every format. And yeah, it's, uh, it's easily available. It's called Never Sit in the Lobby. Amazing. Thank you so much, Glenn. This has been awesome. Yeah, I think I got a, a ton of value from this and I hope our audience has as well. And we're excited to read the book. And over time, we want to get you access to our community as well. So our community can buy the yeah. book and listen to a, lot of, to a lot of the stuff from you. Thank you, Antonio. Awesome That's stuff, amazing. Man. Have a great Thank rest you. of your day. You too.